So, uh, tonight I want to, in a way, continue this uh, movement on this spiral uh, that may or may not yet even seem like a spiral to you. Um, and in a way also tie a few things together, in a way, not. <laughs> um, uh, well, we'll see. I want to start by um, going back to something that was up a little while ago <coughs> and uh, talk a bit more about emptiness and <coughs> equanimity and ex Benedict. Um, so, what, what, do, what do we know? What, what, what can we say about that? Um, that particular trinity. <laughs> Thursday, I'll let you know. Okay. Eggs Benedict, like it or not, is a built-up concept. It's a it's a built-up concept. Uh, despite <laughs> despite. <laughs> Training on dangerous ground. <laughs> Despite what one might think at certain or feel. How about a souffle? <laughs> at certain, at certain uh, moments or stretches. Uh, it's not inherently wonderful. If you've had a um, hundred souffles in a row uh, and you're on your hundred and first, it's... It's not going to be inherently wonderful. It's not even that everyone in here would even like Eggs Benedict. So there's nothing in Eggs Benedict per se that's inherently wonderful. Not everyone will like it. I mean, if you ask the pig, you know, with the bacon, I mean, I'm <laughs> not sure the pig would be particularly keen on Eggs Benedict. So it's built up. How is it built up? How does it get built up? <clears throat> well, uh, we build things by thinking about them, through thinking and through repeated thinking. That's one of the ways we build a substantiality to things we give. And thinking a lot, we end up obsessing about something. And that obsessing, that thinking, is part of the building process. And we bring in memory also. And that memory is part of the building process. And we bring in association. I associate Eggs Benedict in my memory with whatever. But then other factors uh, can play into that as well in this building of Eggs Benedict. Uh, loneliness. Interesting how factors like that uh, affect, particularly around food. Loneliness ends up being part of what, what can build Eggs Benedict. A perception or a feeling or an emotion of deprivation also ends up feeding uh, this, this concept of Eggs Benedict. Desire, of course. And then there's the visual appearance, if a miracle ever happens and one goes into the Guy House dining room and there is, lo and behold, <laughs> in all its glory, Eggs Benedict. The visual appearance, and then the mind is Eggs Benedict, yippee, or what on earth's that? I've never seen anything like that. <laughs> uh, but let's say it's Eggs Benedict, yippee. And in all that, through all that building, uh, the solidity, the substantiality uh, in the mind of something called Eggs Benedict is increased. It's, it's gotten more substantial. Now what if, uh, and I hope no one would ever do this, but what if someone, uh, one of the coordinators one day, put in the dining room, on the buffet table, 
You know those Korean restaurants that you, in in the window? Do you have that in England? It's <laughs> where they get the like plastic replicas of. Okay. Sushi. Yeah. Okay. Plastic plastic eggs Benedict. <laughs> Someone who put plastic eggs Benedict. Um, now clearly that's not eggs Benedict. Clearly that you can't. You know, it's it's not going to give you the eggs Benedict experience. It might right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, th- so it's not in the visual form. The X Benedict is not in the visual form. You say, what's well, in the taste? It's in the taste. Well, what if, like uh, what they give to astronauts when they go up into space, you got some kind of pill uh, that you chewed, or a, a, like a toothpaste-like substance that you squirted into your mouth and chomp, chomp, chomp a little bit, and then exactly the replica of the X Benedict taste. <laughs> it's not going to do it for you. Um, we can go, keep going with this, but basically, if we if you did a Chandrakirti chariot on eggs Benedict, we wouldn't actually be able to find eggs Benedict. <clears throat> so that's one thing. But let's let's take the approach of mindfulness. <clears throat> if I'm <clears throat> if I bring mindfulness to the, the the taste and the realm of taste. At first, in bringing that mindfulness, in bringing that care of attention, that presence, that simplicity of attention, uh, the difference of taste between eggs benedict and porridge will be heightened. The mindfulness brings a sensitivity, it brings a kind of cleaning of the perception, and I actually notice with more delicacy, more more uh, sensitivity, more vividness, the, the different uh, tastes and kind of... Um, constituent tastes, even, of, of, of a mouthful of food. But, if I'm even more mindful, if my mindfulness, I'm really putting energy into mindfulness, and the mindfulness has really a lot of energy behind it, and there's equanimity, which, remember, I'm defining as a, a quietening of the push and pull of aversion and uh, grasping. If there's a lot of mindfulness, very, very keen mindfulness, and equanimity, this relaxing the push and pull, and perhaps uh, 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 letting go of the identification with the one who knows the taste, or with the mouth and all of that, then what we will find, actually, that this initial surge of heightened uh, taste and heightened separation between taste of eggs, benedict and porridge, that actually will begin to... Dissipate. We will see through it. The solidity, the substantiality um, to the taste will actually dissipate, will, will, will decrease, and eventually fade. So for practitioners, and this, and this may take you know years for a practitioner, we, we, there's this kind of bell curve that I was talking about. Things begin to get more vivid, and then with real pe- kind of penetration of the mindfulness and, and the equanimity, etc., they, they actually begin to fade. Uh, some of you, well, it depends. Sometimes a person on a uh, long retreat, perhaps, or doing particular practices, let's say uh, a lot of metta practice or a lot of jhana practice, or for any other reason, uh, has a lot of happiness inside, a lot of well-being through the samadhi, through the metta or something. And people regularly come to me, not just long retreat, long-term retreats, and say, it's interesting, you know, the food is just not a big deal. It's so, it feels like so not a big deal, what's for lunch? <clears throat> and uh, some people on Simple Diet say, bland every day, same thing every day, boiled steamed tofu, boiled vegetables, and boiled rice. And it's really, really profoundly okay. And there's enough 
uh, and I'm not saying this to make anyone feel bad, I'm just uh, stressing something which is actually important to realize, that there can be enough joy inside, for whatever reason, ho- hopefully from practice, enough joy inside that, uh, that, that there isn't that deluded investment uh, in food with a kind of promise of happiness. That that just, that just subsides. And one has enough happiness and peace inside uh, that that uh, investment goes, and, and then we don't bring out the dualities between porridge and ex-Benedict or, or whatever else. And what's on offer when we go into the dining room or whatever, it doesn't, it's not that we don't perceive it, it just doesn't stand out so much as such a prominent and important thing. So we're still perceiving this and that, but its prominence has subsided uh, in in a way we're taking in much more of the totality of the experience of being in the dining room, or the totality of the day. And in that equanimity, we take in more of the totality. This or that particular is not so prominent. And it could even be that with really a lot of, uh, say, joy or metta or compassion, actually, these particulars... Uh, again, they fade in a field. What we perceive when we go into the dining room is a field of love. What we perceive when we go in is, is the expression of joy somehow. And these are palpable, but you could say mystical perceptions, but they're very real. The chitta state, the state of the chitta, as, as we've said, uh, colors our perceptions. It colors our perceptions. How we perceive the dining room, how we perceive whatever, uh, will be colored by the state of our heart and mind at that moment. So when there's love, we tend to see love, we tend to see warmth. When there isn't, we don't tend to see that. When there's joy, again, we tend to see that. That's what what will stand out to us, that's what will appear to consciousness. Compassion, likewise. And in that, one is not, uh, so to speak, impregnating food with a kind of meaning or significance and burdening it with that, which it doesn't actually inherently have. So, there's the experience in the dining room, moving through the queue, and there's the experience in meditation, and this kind of uh, deep, uh, attentive looking at things, and playing with ways of looking that we talk about. And in, in meditation, the possibility is that, as we've been saying over a few weeks now, a couple of weeks or ten days, whatever it is, the experiences, the perceptions can begin to fade. And maybe you're just getting a tiny glimpse of this right now. Maybe they're really fading a lot, whatever. Eventually, uh, they really f- can fade at times quite dramatically. And in, in that, we see the emptiness. In the meditation, they fade. Post-meditation, coming out, we move in the world of appearances and perceptions and, and the world of form and color and, and substance. But post-meditation, when it's gone deep, uh, we say... it that world of appearances and perception appears like an illusion. It has a kind of magical quality to it. It's not, uh, it's not quite the same world uh, before the seeing of the emptiness. So perceptions and appearances are there, but we know they're empty. When I focus and emphasize the emptiness with my mind, when I'm emphasizing the emptiness and, and focusing on the emptiness, the perceptions will fade. When I back off emphasizing the emptiness, the perceptions kind of reappear. And I can actually, again, it's a spectrum, I can play with that spectrum. I play with more appearances, forget about emptiness. Appearances and know the emptiness, really emphasize the emptiness, appearances begin to fade. So this fading, and last night I was talking about this cessation, 
um, what are the reactions to that? You know, what were the reactions last night? What were the reactions to the to hearing about this whole uh, phenomenon of fading? What are the implications of it? What are the implications? So yesterday I touched very briefly on them when I said, just asking you, what what do you want the answer to be? For instance, that's. I want to just say a little bit more about that. We have different dispositions as human beings, and different leanings, and different inclinations, and different. Um, yearnings in a way, different things that move us. I may have a disposition, uh, a, a yearning, a tendency towards, and I use this word lightly and uh, with a lot of respect because I consider myself a religious person, whatever that might mean, but um, uh, we can have a tendency to go to a religion of that T-H-A-T, with a capital T, that the transcendent, and a religion of that. And that, that's kind of where the, the, the heart, not just the mind, but the heart tends to go with a sense of um, uh, yearning even, uh, towards the transcendent, towards what is beyond the world and beyond the senses, beyond the mind. And oftentimes, another person will look at that and kind of denigrate that or poo-poo that. I don't want any of that. But unwittingly, another person may have a religion of this. This. This is the reality. This is, this is it, somehow. And th- uh, that religion of this uh, can take, be there for different reasons, can take different forms. Maybe a religion of this because there's fear. And I don't know if uh, yesterday, talking about this unfabricated, going completely beyond... Uh, the senses, etc., including like completely beyond phenomena and consciousness, whether for some people that sounds uh, like it's ringing bells of nihilism, and then there's fear. Or perhaps there's fear because it might sound like something like that is denying life, life with a big L. And there's something uh, life-denying and nihilistic about it, or implying of a, a lack of meaning and lack of love. So it could be that we gravitate towards a religion of this because of those reasons, because of fear. It could be because of a feeling like, this is it, this is it, this palpable, ephemeral, uh, phenomenal, tangible, earthy reality, this is it. And again, that could be because of a sense of the beauty of that tangibility, earthiness, ephemeralness, uh, the poignancy of it. Uh, It could be because of that, could be because of the sense of connectivity and groundedness of it the imminence of it. Or it could be uh, given a slightly different colour. Um, these are by no means all the possibilities, by, by any means, so I just want to draw attention to something. It could be given a this is it, gives a slightly different colour. It's more kind of, um, what would you call it, a kind of grim existentialist view of kind of this is it, get on with it, deal with it. This is it, doesn't, you know, this is it. Um, I use the word religion, I say it's probably not the right word because I... Uh, I, uh, you know, I don't mean to denigrate that word at all. And as I said, I would call myself religious, if, you know. But um, m- my point is more: where are we leaning? Where are we gravitating towards, and why? And are we aware of that? And to me, that's absolutely crucial for integrity, for self-honesty, for for all of that, for real inquiry. So I, I just want to point that out and kind of give it to you as an inquiry, as an ongoing inquiry. I think it's really, really important.
And you come across uh, that split within the Buddha Dharma, those splits actually, and those emphases and those tendencies uh, in the Buddha Dharma within teachers, within scriptures, within uh, writings, within uh, talks, and within, within practitioners. But this phenomenon of fading and all the way down to cessation, that needs explanation. That needs explanation. I cannot ignore that. I mean, people do ignore it. In fact, a lot of people ignore it. But it actually needs explanation. As delusion, etc., drops, my, uh, if you remember my analogy of the uh, poker, poker chips, as that uh, poker chips, the first link in dependent region, as that drops, all the rest drop. That pile drops, all the rest pile drops. Things fade. Less delusion, less appearances, less perception, less nama rupa, etc., now, either, <clears throat> again, it could be two different types of people, three different types of people. Either I'm a person who doesn't care much what the Buddha is supposed to have said in the Pali Canon. Fine. And I, I have no problem with that at all. I have no problem with that. But sooner or later in my meditation, if I'm really giving my heart and my soul to meditation, I'm really inquiring, I'm really going to, I'm going to run into this phenomenon of fading. And if there's intelligent questioning, I'm going to have to, what does it mean? What are its implications? So either, based on my own depth of experience in meditation, I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to reckon and wrestle with this phenomenon. Or I may be a person who's perhaps not there yet in meditation, or a person who anyway tends to go for a sense of authority to the words of the Pali Canon, the Buddha, and the Sutta, and that Sutta. And as I read last night, I don't know how many quotes from the Buddha. Very, very clear. Very clear. It's there. People ignore it, but it's there. So if you're that type of person, it's there. And you have to reckon with it. You have to wrestle with it. And the Buddha says, the cessation of avidya, the cessation of delusion, cessation, remainderless stopping, the stopping, the fading, different words he uses, cessation of delusion brings a cessation of sankharas, brings a cessation of consciousness. What does that mean? Cessation of consciousness and the cessation of perceptions, vedana, which doesn't just mean vedana or getting neutral, it means the cessation of even a sense of neutrality, the cessation of contact. All this is part of nama rupa. So I have to reckon with that. He's, he doesn't say it's the cessation of the colouring of consciousness, that consciousness is just more neutral, it doesn't tend to be so biased. It's not what's being said, it's not there. He doesn't say it's the cessation of a kind of distortion of consciousness. He doesn't say it's a distortion, it's a cessation of an egotistical consciousness. There's something very, very, uh, I don't know, disturbing really is being said. Uh, or you could be a person both, that you give authority to the Pali Canon and you see it in meditation. Then definitely have to recommend it. So it seems, it seems that either there is the force of delusion or the force of sankharas, which you could say is habitual ways of looking, habitual patterns of ways we perceive things, that bring the perception of conventional experience. Either we're in that mode, or... Uh, we are contemplating emptiness, etc., lingo of clinging, etc., and there's a uh, uh, lessening of delusion and so a fading. <clears throat> so, this, and I touched on this last night, I just want to fill it out a little bit more. Uh, this is something to be reckoned with. At some point, it's something to be, I can ignore it, and plenty of people do, but to me, it's something to be reckoned with. 
Um, and the question then, and, and, and it will come up, it will come up for people who have the experience of deep fading and, and cessation. What, what is that that remains? What is that? This deathless, this unfabricated. Is it that it's, it's the ultimate existing thing? Is it that it's the thing with, with true inherent existence, or does it not exist at all, or what? Um, I feel, when one has the experience, uh, well, there, there is a sense of holiness there. Now, maybe that's just uh, telling you which religion I tend <laughs> to go to, but... Uh, it's funny teaching, because sometimes t- teaching around this subject, around teaching emptiness, sometimes it's very hard in language to get the exact middle way. It's very hard to communicate that. And so sometimes in a talk I will lean slightly this way, or even quite a lot this way, uh, in terms of reifying a sense of an absolute. And sometimes I will lean the other way, and it will sound to people as if I'm just saying everything, everything, everything is empty. And people get angry, one way or another, people get angry. It's not a safe job. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, lot of reactions one way or another, because the other one stinks of nihilism, or has the fear of nihilism for people. And as I said um, last night, uh, uh, the Buddha talks, or one translation from my teacher is actually unbinding, nirvana, unbinding, rather than it's an object. Uh, and it might seem like an object at first. Shantarakshita was, I think I mentioned him once, he was um, 8th or ninth centuries uh, a Mahayana uh, teacher that went from India to Tibet, so I think the, f- I think the first uh, Indian teacher to go to Tibet <coughs> and spread the Dharma there, I think. Um, and he says that, uh, like, like uh, my teacher was saying, it's not really that the mind is, co- or there is a cog- cognizing of uh, an unconditioned, inherently existent object, really, really. And he actually, uh, in one of his seminal texts, he actually goes through a proof of why it cannot be inherently existent, which is very complicated, and I'm not going to go into it tonight. But <clears throat> Coming back to the Pali Canon, um, some of you will know, and sometimes it's in morning chants, um, Sabbe Sankara Anicca. Have you heard this? Sam- Sabbe Sankara Dukkha. Mm-hmm. It means... All compounded things, all fabricated things are impermanent. All fabricated things, sankharas, all fabricated things are unsatisfactory. But then it goes, uh, so that's the first two characteristics, and then it says, sabbe dhamma anatta. I'm not sure if my grammar's right, but sabbe dhamma anatta. It changes the word from sankhara to dhamma. A dhamma is uh, so not just fabricated things, but also unfabricated things. All phenomena anatta. And you could say all phenomena, not me, not atta, not self. I would prefer a wider meaning, a deeper meaning to that anatta. All phenomena are without essence. All phenomena are without essence. So, as I said, this causes, uh, or there is, in relation to this whole notion of the unfabricated, actually experience of the unfabricated, teaching of the unfabricated, a tremendous amount of hoo-ha and reactivity. Um, And so a person will say, the transcendent has no inherent existence. Uh, And that may be quite right, and it is quite right, but to me it's really important, really, really important that that 
that's not implying, and that does not imply, A, that it doesn't exist, because actually the alarm clock doesn't have any hearing sense. It still exists conventionally. A, that it doesn't exist, and B, even more important, that it has no value. That it has no value. So we could say, ultimately, uh, the unfabricated, the transcendent, whatever name you want to give it, the deathless, ultimately has no more existence than the mundane, the, the worldly. Although you could say it's less fabricated. It's like when you get uh, you know, a whole big papancha about something, and a whole storm, and, and you've created this whole reality, and you think, God, I was com- completely uh, in some uh, you know, unreal belief about something. And then as we get less tantrum, less tantrum, more and more, and more you actually see I'm, uh, it's in, in a way things are getting more real, you could say. So we could say the unfabricated by its very name is less fabricated. But ultimately speaking, it has no more existence than the mundane. But, uh, what can we say, experientially or em- empirically, it's no less of a fact and it's no less existent. I could say love is empty and love is empty. I could say generosity is empty and generosity is empty. Compassion is empty. Insight is empty. Insight, realization is empty. They're all empty. But they're all completely and utterly crucial fundamental to our well-being as human beings and fundamental to our path and of, of such great value. Who would, who would say, uh, who, who's going to throw love out the window? Who's going to throw kindness out the window? With the very same people who say the transcendent has no inherent existence, uh, therefore there's no place for it in the teaching, would they say the same about kindness? It therefore has no place and no value. There's immense value in that, uh, I feel. When, if we go deep, deep, deep into the fading, then uh, we're going deep, deep, deep. We're understanding deeper dependent arising and emptiness. The meaning of that is more palpable, more deep. It means a lot, lot more, seeing it that way. It's uh, force and it's penetration, it's comprehensiveness, it's, it's depth, it's radicality of what it means, means much, much more. There's other uh, implications, and I'm a little hesitant to get into them, but I I will. Classically, or what could you say, in in the classic, what has come to be the kind of classic Theravadan way of seeing things, an arahant, a completely enlightened being, the model is that they are freed, this being is freed from samsara freed from the world of the six senses. And uh, while alive, after their awakening, there's a question, how do they see things? If, if delusion is what's giving rise to experience, how does Narahant see things? It, it's a question. I'll come back to that. Um, but at death, if, you know, if you buy this classical model, at death, uh, their sankharas, their karmic motivation is exhausted, and there is no more fabricating of experiences, etc., for rebirth. So, in that model, and this what was, uh, the Buddha kind of goes for, there's no questioning of the world out there and whether it exists or in what way it exists, etc. And that's the more phenomenological model. Also, in that model, or rather, in the classical Theravada model, for the most part, there's come to then be a split between 
ultimate reality and uh, uh, the ultimate reality and the unfabricated, the unconditioned, the deathless on one hand, and this worldly phenomena, the conventional reality, and they're two completely and utterly separate things. As one of my teachers said, there's no connection between them whatsoever. They have no, no contact. They're two radically different separate things. Uh, so ordinary consciousness is something very, very different. Uh... Can, can it wait, or does it does it need to? Yeah, it's just that I missed uh, okay. something when you talked about uh, what the Aaron is, and you said that at death uh, their uh, motivation is exhausted. Their karmic momentum is exhausted. Momentum is exhausted, and then what? And so they don't fabricate any more experiences. In other words, they don't fabricate a life. You know, they're not reborn. But it doesn't say at death. The, that, what does that mean for the consciousness? Well, the, the, the Pali canon would not say anything. It would say you can't say exist, doesn't exist, uh, both or neither. But it emphatically does not go there. Emphatically does not go there. Yes, but he doesn't say... But what he says... Nothing. No, actually, he, what, he, what he says is there's no rebirth. But it, when he's asked on several occasions what then... Do they exist after death? Do they not exist? He, he said, you can't, you can't go there. But he very clearly said there's no rebirth, uh, which means there's no rebirth of appearances. Okay. So, th- so this is why this, this has a lot of implications. Whether I've arrived at it through, through deep practice, and I've never read a text of the Buddha, and I've just practiced, 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 and drawn my own conclusions, uh, my, seen my own stuff scientifically, or whether I'm relying on the Buddha. If it's delusion as the f- first element in dependent arising that gives rise to consciousness and experience, how do you feel about that? A lot of people would feel sad. It seems to relegate or denigrate uh, life uh, and perhaps, you know cast a, a sort of veil or, or, or shadow of meaninglessness, perhaps, on life. All life is, is appearances that are arising based on delusion. Take away the delusion, nothing's there. Um, a person could have that reaction, and uh, I know people do, and that would be very understandable. However, if one sees it for oneself, you see emptiness deeply enough, you see this fading deeply enough, I do not think, and I know, that's, that will not be the reaction. That will not be the reaction. What happens if you see emptiness deeply enough, you see this fading, is quite different. There's a bowing, I feel. There's a bowing. And uh, life is not what it seems. One realizes life is not what it seems to be, but that brings that very... No- not being what it seems to be, brings a bowing, brings a freedom, and also a deep, deep reverence. It's not that we don't care. Well, we can let go of what we know are empty, phenomenal uh, experiences, which is what life is. But within that, there's uh, no uh, less care, I would say actually more care, more care, more love, more reverence, that's the actual experience. If we haven't had the experience, very easily the mind goes, well, that must mean da-da-da-da-da-da-da. There's a second problem, and it's sort of been in, in the air, 
if it's delusion that gives rise this to consciousness and experience, I'm, I'm aware this might sound extremely abstract. I don't know. No? Okay. Okay. At a certain point, it, it becomes very relevant. Uh, that's all I can say. So I, I hope it's okay to talk about it. So the Buddha said, no appearances for an arahant after death, no appearances for a Buddha after death in the Pali Canon. Several hundred years after the Buddha died, there was a kind of, actually around the same time as Jesus was uh, preaching in, in, in Galilee and, 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 and Jerusalem, and, and the emphasis on love and compassion very two different but extremely strong re-emphasizing of love and compassion and the notion of what a Buddha was uh, took took a transformation and you get this sort of split between Theravada and Mahayana and for a Mahayana Buddha it's a very different thing than a Theravada Buddha a Mahayana Buddha is uh, around eternally for the sake of compassion for the sake of um, healing the suffering of, of, of sentient beings However, if a Buddha is also a person who's gotten rid of delusion, how is that possible that they sustain appearances and consciousness and perceptions? Do, do you see? There's, there's, there's a difficulty there. This uh, spawned debates that went on for hundreds and hundreds of years and different attempts to explain it. Incredibly uh, sophisticated philosophy. Um, I am not, I really want to say, I have huge, huge uh, respect and love for, and I actually don't even make a distinction between Theravada and Mahayana in myself. It, it doesn't mean I'm just pointing something out historical. I do not want to say that... Um, what to say, I don't want to take the stance of a historical scientist and just say, well, they have this belief because they needed to find a way to make it work that a Buddha could do this. Uh, that doesn't sit okay with me. I have too much uh, respect for, uh, for, for those teachings. Um, however, I can see from that point of view how the philosophies had to kind of come up with something like that. But I, I don't want to say that. I really don't want to say that. Um, for me, I'm I have a conundrum there. The Mahayana perspective anyway on emptiness is slightly different. Rather than pulling apart a kind of disconnected ultimate from a, a conventional reality, uh, Madhyamaka Mahayana, the middle way Mahayana, is actually looking right from the beginning at the emptiness of all phenomena and has this kind of more ontological bent that we've been talking about. Uh, though that is al already there in the Pali Canon, and I've uh, shared several quotes with you where the Buddha says this is this is like an illusion, and uh, he or she has become conjuring free, and it's uh, like a magic show, or all this is unreal, all this is unreal. But most Mahayana, their ultimate and conventional is not separate, is not separate. The ultimate, meaning emptiness, is the very nature of phenomena. So. In, in my thread through this retreat, I, I have neither been totally classical Theravadin nor totally classically Mahayana. And that's just because I've shared uh, what seems to me the best way to move through this for a practitioner. But in the Mahayana, the emphasis on the ultimate emptiness is the very nature of phenomenal reality. 
the difference is not in an object being different, it's in the, in the cognizing subject, in the re- in case of recognition within the subject. So there's several quotes from Nagarjuna and Chandrakirti who said, the final nature of phenomena is peace. The final nature of phenomena is peace. Beautiful. They also talk, I said yesterday, there are several meanings, there's four, four meanings of nirvana. One of them is what's called natural nirvana, natural nirvana, which means natural nirvana is the actual emptiness of things. That all phenomena are actually empty, suchness, uh, there's suchness, meaning emptiness, means there's nothing there to be a problem, they're actually fundamentally peace. You understand? It's just <clears throat> there's a text called the Samdhinya uh, Mochana, which weirdly I can't really understand, but it translates as the Sutra elucidating the Buddha's intention. It's a Mahayana text. The fabricated realm and the definitive ultimate are defined by the lack of sameness or difference. The lack of being the same or different. Whoever imagines them to be the same or different is possessed of mistaken imagination. So Nagarjuna, also in his Mulamajamaka character, I think it might even be the final chapter, I can't remember, says, there's no difference whatsoever, there's not the slightest difference between samsara and nirvana. There's not the slightest difference between samsara and nirvana. It's a radical teaching of non-duality. Now, into all this, into all this comes the whole notion of uh, what's called in in the in the Indian Buddhist philosophy that arose a few hundred years after the Buddha's death. Uh, the whole notion of what then is a valid cognition? If things fade when I take away the delusion, if things are really empty, what can I say about what's really there? What can I say is uh, a knowing that's valid? And this became a huge huge philosophical project in, in India. Um, only, so Chandrakirti says, only a direct cognition of emptiness, and when no phenomena appear at all, cessation what we're talking about, only a direct cognition of emptiness is really a valid cognition. Everything else is invalid because it's based on delusion, and it's not seeing things how they really are. But, again, that was something that uh, took hundreds and hundreds of years of debate that wasn't easily swallowed. Mm. Uh, Partly because this trend of wanting to establish what can we actually know as human beings, what can we say about this world, and actually, you know, as people have been saying, if a train comes, it's like, don't lie in front of it because it's going to hurt, at the very least. Um, So that stream in Indian Buddhist philosophy, of valid cognition (coughs) philosophy, that that was already well established. It had to be kind of addressed. In Tibet, um, this teacher Tsongkhapa that came in the 14th and 15th centuries, he he had a look around. He was a great, great teacher. And he had a look around him, and he felt... (coughs) He felt that people's understanding of emptiness was nihilistic at that time in Tibet. And in their nihilism, I think that he also felt that they were ignoring ethics. That actually emptiness means that nothing really exists, so I can do whatever I want, and it's all fine. I don't mind. It's all, it's all empty. It doesn't. Nothing matters. So he had a real concern to actually not uh, 
dismiss conventional reality and actually really really go into this question. There, there is valid cognition of emptiness, of uh, conventional reality. This really is an alarm clock at some level. And the third thing that had to be woven in was that um, how's a Buddha going to abide knowing things? Okay. So it was said, or it is said, uh, in the Mahayana that only a Buddha, not even an Arahant, but only a Buddha can see conventional reality and ultimate reality, meaning emptiness, fully at the same time. I say, if I've practiced, and never mind all the texts, I don't care about any of the scriptures, what I notice as a deep practitioner, I don't believe anything anyone says, what I notice as a, as a practitioner and going deep, 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 when I contemplate the emptiness of things, deeply it begins to fade. When I don't, it comes back. Only a Buddha, it said in the Mahayana teachings, only a Buddha can see uh, deeply and fully both the emptiness and the conventional reality of things. So, I don't have any answers for this. I, reading, just the limited amount of reading I've done, you will get different answers within, from different Mahayana traditions, different answers from different Tibetan traditions, quite different uh, what's going on here. We have a tendency as human beings to want to ask, well, what's really there? Even if we've heard about emptiness, what's really there? I want to know what's really there. We can see with dependent arising, there's a malleability of perception. And we've talked about, you know, when there's love, I see a certain way. When there's samadhi, what appears as pain, I can color it as actually bliss. A person can do that. And then the more you see the emptiness, the more you can actually color your experience how you want. You shape, you, you uh, what was it, malleate your, your experience how you want to a certain extent. And that story of the Buddha with Mara's arrows and became flowers. And a person says, shh, what's the implications of that? <coughs> How far does that go? Surely there are limits. Surely there are limits. <laughs> Mark's not sure. I don't, I don't know the answer to this. I don't know the answer. So I feel a little ambivalent about ending the retreat with some questions. But that's partly why I want to say this emptiness business goes so deep, so deep. If you think, if we think, if I think, I've got it, I've finished now, there's more. We haven't actually gone deep enough in terms of what we've seen the emptiness of. And if we go deep enough, it raises other questions that are just really difficult to answer. As far as I can tell so far, my limited study of this so far, there isn't a satisfactory, totally satisfactory, or at least agreed upon answer in the Buddhist traditions. And sometimes people say, what we perceive is dependent on our karma. So even that train, we perceive that train dependent on our karma. If you know a little bit about tantric practice, tantra is, is partly the attempt to imitate a Buddha's mind, of being able to see deeply the emptiness and the conventional phenomena and actually sh have that shaped at the same time. And the more deeply you go into emptiness practice, the more you can actually practice that, actually modulating this appearances fading, appearances fading, and mix it with love, etc. And uh, a lot of compassion can come out of that. So there's a teacher, I mentioned him once, Mipam Rinpoche, uh, who I'm growing very, very fond of, and he, he died in the early 20th century. He's from the Dzogchen tradition, but he was very conversant with all the Tibetan traditions. And he said, well, if that's what a Buddha understands, this this coalescence, this union of appearances and reality, that's then the final view and the final wisdom. 
union of appearances and emptiness. The union of appearances and emptiness. And in a way, leaving aside all this what happens after death, and I don't believe in rebirth, and that's completely fine, just scrapping all that, we move in the world of appearances and perceptions, whether we like it or not. That's what we move in. And the way to move in it free, as freely as possible to the depth of freedom is seeing appearances appear and they're empty. And that emptiness is not separate from appearances. Appearances and empty, emptiness are together, together. Talk about the union of appearances and emptiness. So I, I veer off that topic, uh, not really veer, but move in a slightly different direction. It's still very much connected to that, but uh, like I said, I don't have the answers, and I'm not sure anyone really does. But um, What's more important for practice, as we, all of us, go deeper in practice, and we practice more and more, this emptiness, this dependent arising, is said to be the middle way. It's the middle way, and that, again, is uh, something from the Pali Canon. I think I told you the story. Buddha was talking to someone called Kachyana. And he said, basically, people view and feel things, either they exist or they don't exist. And there's that uh, polarity and duality in the way we feel about the world. And he said, that's the way beings see the world for the most part. But I, the Buddha, uh, I, I, I can't remember the word, I buy uh, neither exist nor non-exist. I say neither exist nor non-exist. I teach the middle way beyond existing and not existing. And I, uh, of all phenomena, of all phenomena. So what does that mean, the middle way, between it really really existing and not existing? I can't remember, actually. I'm sorry. I found it once because someone else asked me and then I lost it again. It, um, sorry. Yeah. It's in the Pali Canon for sure and it's a guy he's talking to, Kachayana. Kachayana. I can see if I can find it for you. Um, so all these Mahayana teachings actually have their root in the in the Pali Canon, if you're interested. But this middle way is not a it's not a kind of um, compromise between existing and not. It's not a kind of like existing is there and non-existing is it some, somehow in the middle or a sort of mixture of existing and not existing. Or to quote Jeffrey Hopkins, uh, it's ne- it's n- not that. It's also not a grey area of agnostic doubt. It's not that either. Something, as, as I keep saying in the retreat, it's something we can really know that's important. It's not just we shrug and say whatever. So, quote from Tsongkhapa, it's a little wordy, but the combination of, on the one hand, refuting without residue inherent existence, what he's calling the object of negation, inherent existence, refuting without residue inherent existence, and on the other hand, the feasibility of positing as left after the negation without losing anything, all the functionalities of dependently arisen causes and effects as like illusions. Uh, That combination is extremely rare, he says. Extremely rare. Therefore, it is very difficult to gain the view of the middle way. Very difficult to gain the view of the middle way. It's a little wordy, so... um, Should I just explain it? Would that be better? Yeah. Um, So what he's saying is, it's very rare for someone to go really... Uh, comprehensively and thoroughly and deeply 
into emptiness and actually see deeply the emptiness of things. So I said before, I said, you could say the self is a process, and I said, that's great, but it doesn't quite go completely enough. You've left something inherently existent. People say, awareness, that's, you know, you've left something inherently existent, or time. To go all the way and see thoroughly what it means, how deeply it means to say that uh, things lack inherent existence, on the one hand, and on the other hand, or complement to that, to actually realize that things preserve, in that very emptiness, preserve their functionality of cause and effect, uh, and appear like illusions. But cause and effect works. If I lie in front of that train, it's going to hurt. You know, or th Those two together um, is the middle way, and that's hard, hard, hard to realize. Something very hard to realize. I'm going to explain a bit more. Either we tend to go nihilistic and over, over, uh, what's called over-negate, over-empty, things, uh, and go uh, ignoring cause and effect, um, or, and I feel more often nowadays, is that we don't go deep enough and we don't actually refute this innate sense of inherent existence. It's not just a theory, it's not just a theoretical, philosophical problem, inherent existence. We look at the world and we feel in our guts that things exist inherently, certainly that I do, the world does, awareness does, time does. Uh, so either we don't go enough or we go too much. So Tsongkhapa had these concerns in 14th and 15th century Tibet. I, I just have a question whether the same concerns are so important now in the West. And I, again, it's about personalities. What's my tendency? And I, I've thrown this out a couple of times. Maybe I go like this. Maybe I tend to one side. Maybe I tend to the other side. Maybe I flip-flop as, as the understanding goes deeper. Um, that middle way is a razor's edge. I call it a razor's edge. Uh, last year, I was lucky enough, um, I met uh, a lovely guy called Peter uh, Gang. He's a, uh, he lives in Berlin, and he's a, um, a scholar of Buddhism. And he invited me, because uh, I was just beginning to learn Sanskrit, and he said, come and I'll, I'll give you an... I'll teach you, you know, and um, so I went for a week, and and uh, and he helped me uh, with Sanskrit, and um, we were we were studying the Heart Sutra, it's a, a very famous Prajnaparamita text, and the Heart Sutra, and some of you will know it, and and it usually gets translated as form is emptiness, or a passage in it. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form, or form is empty, emptiness is form. And he had uh, a theory, a hypothesis, which I found very interesting. <clears throat> so, the actual Sanskrit reads form, emptiness, emptiness, form. I can't remember the exact words, but there's no is there. There's no is in the middle. Now, Sanskrit, you can get away with that because you can often have sentences without a verb and it's just implied. But when it was translated into to Tibetan, they left the is out. So the Tibetan also reads form, emptiness. But Tibetan has an is, and you could put an is in there. And uh, apparently, historically, the, the translations were made with Sanskrit scholars, Buddhist, Indian Buddhist Sanskrit scholars and, and Buddhist scholars, together with Tibetan scholars. So the Sanskrit guy could have t told, uh, you know, no, it means is, but didn't. said, no, don't put the is in. And Peter had this theory, or has this theory, that actually what it's really saying is, so it reads in English, form, emptiness, emptiness, form. So he said, it's like, if you say form, I'm going to say emptiness. If you say emptiness, I'm going to say form. 
If you say, and it goes through all the aggregates like that, if you say consciousness, I'm going to say emptiness. If you say emptiness, I'm going to say consciousness. Mm. In other words, wherever you lean, I'll pull you the other way. Rebalancing. Rebalancing. The middle way is a razor's edge. So I have no idea if that's true, but it's a very, you know, I found it very interesting, and uh, it's very um, skillful as a teaching. So it may or may not be historically correct. It's very skillful as a teaching. So we see this, and I've thrown this out already, we see this in cultures. Uh, Indian Buddhism tends to lean one way, on the whole. Chinese and Japanese culture and Buddhism tends to lean the other way, on the whole. You can't really generalize. But we also see it in individuals, and we see it in the movement of practice over time, perhaps. <clears throat> Probably for a practitioner, what's more true, I would say, as one gets deeper, is, is this more gradually seeing more and more of the comprehensiveness and the depth of emptiness, rather than swinging like that. It's more, you just see more and more. And I wonder if, contrary to Tsongkhapa's time, nowadays in the West, the tendency is actually not to go far enough and not to negate enough. And just being around and reading different things and, and talking with people, etc., that seems to be uh, my sense on the whole. Occasionally you meet people and they say, sort of, it's all empty, or everything's empty, therefore I can do whatever I want. But they haven't really seen emptiness, they're, and they're, they're in the minority anyway, and they tend to looking for an excuse to disregard ethics. So there's ways that we can not negate enough, and I think it's, many of these I've mentioned already, but I want to, because I really want to stress this, how deep, how thorough, how comprehensive, how radical this teaching of emptiness is. Um, it could be that we say emptiness teachings, all they're really doing is pointing to the limitations of language and particularly the limitations of language in our culture. Not enough. Language is not the problem. Uh, it could be, and this has been said, and you will find this if you read a lot in this, that the Madhyamaka emptiness teachings are only kind of... It's a philosophical system that all it's interested in doing is refuting other philosophical systems and not saying anything else. It's just kind of shooting up other uh, intellectual positions down. Or it's an attack on reasoning and logic. And some people say emptiness is really, what it's getting at is that the reasoning mind and the logic are invalid. But actually, even just reading the text, let alone practicing, liberation is the point. Freedom is the point. It's not, it's not some clever opinion about the limitations of language or reasoning or something. A slight variation of that, sometimes people think emptiness is saying that thought and the thinking mind is the problem. And so just don't think, don't think, just experience, or whatever. And again, we haven't been through this. We have, then that brings us back to the notions of bare attention, of staying with contact, of this moment, etc. And we've been into this. That's not enough. It's not enough, because delusion is wrapped up in our perception, in our very seeing of the world. Uh, we see, we feel, in a gut level, we feel the inherent existence of things. Another way we can uh, not negate enough, this is number five if you're counting, um, that we just use emptiness teachings, or we just believe emptiness teachings, are just aimed at concepts like God, or concepts like an awareness that's inherently existent, or the unfabricated. Concepts that we maybe we're a religion of this, and we actually get a bit nervous with anything that seems to smell of a religion of that. 
and those as concepts are refuted, but in that, without realizing, uh, one leaves ordinary experience and the world of ordinary experience only kind of nominally challenged. One's too busy getting rid of God and dispelling any religious notions, getting rid of unfabricated or awareness as having inherent or the vastness of awareness, that one actually leaves all this other stuff, which is the stuff we actually suffer over most. Yeah, it's only gone kind of... Uh, usually that's for people who don't have very deep practices and it's just a kind of in intellectual position. The sixth possibility. Uh, and this can be in different traditions. So it can be in some Tibetan traditions or Zen traditions or Vipassana, insight meditation traditions, but some people will deliberately, said this already, give awareness inherent existence. Or, uh, or the inherent existence of awareness is just left unnoticed and unchallenged, but it's still there. Or, as I said, say, awareness lacks inherent existence because it's unfindable, it's not blue or green or it doesn't have a shape, uh, and that's not deep enough. And lastly, and I've touched on this in this talk, um, coming out of perhaps Sonkapa's concerns and, and um, <coughs> uh, some of that, that one gets too concerned with preserving conventional reality and truth. One just is a little nervous that uh, emptiness will go too far, and I want to I keep this, uh, you know, I want to make sure I'm preserving conventional truth. So in that, sometimes teachings say, I'm not, and this is true, I'm not denying the object, I'm denying its inherent existence, I'm refuting its inherent existence. But if I'm a little not careful with that, what ends up happening is just intellectually I say, this body or this suffering or this being it lacks inherent existence, as if inherent existence is something I could take out of it and get rid of it, but it's okay because the self is still there and, and everything is still there. <laughs> it ends up being uh, a, a kind of careful intellectual position that ends up bringing very little freedom. It's as if we could take away the inherent existence, say that's empty but the thing is still the thing the vase or whatever is, is still the thing. A danger. And not much freedom will come from it. Chandra Kirti. Uh, Chandra Kirti. You can ask later if you want. I do not propound that things do not exist. I do not propound that things do not exist because I propound, because I teach. I do not state, teach, that things do not exist because I propound dependent arising. But if you ask, are you a proponent of true existence then? No, I am not because of just being a proponent of dependent arising. If you ask, what do you propound? I propound dependent arising. If you ask, what is the meaning of dependent arising? It has the meaning of non-inherent arising non-inherent production. It has the meaning of the arising of effects which have a nature similar to that of a magician's illusions, mirages, reflections, cities of Gandharvas, some kind of celestial beings, or emanations and dreams. And it has the meaning of emptiness and selflessness. So sometimes, very often, it's come up in here, I can't remember the question and answer, well, you know, the important thing is don't lie in front of the train. Uh, we can talk all we want about emptiness, but basically, come down to it, you don't lie in front of the train. And sometimes, and of course, 
that's true. But sometimes what that goes to is, is kind of inside, it's like, yes, this is all very nice, this talk about emptiness and lack of inherent existence, but so what? Because when push comes to shove, it's the train that matters. It's the physical reality that matters, and that gets equated with conventional reality. That feels like the most important. Don't lie on the tracks. <laughs> but sometimes, this is so subtle, it's so subtle, and for a practitioner who's, who's, who's caring about this and going deep with this, it's so subtle, the balance is so subtle, and it moves. Sometimes in that, and there's a kind of, may not even be conscious, so what, inherent, lack of inherent existence ends up not meaning too much, or seeming like it's that relevant. We underestimate how much freedom can come from seeing the lack of inherent existence, understanding that we underestimate that that's where the freedom is, and that's where our capacity to love grows and grows. Seeing that deeply, seeing emptiness deep, the whole sense of existence changes. The whole sense even of life and death is different. It changes. The whole sense of one's being is different. And see, the, 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 the emptiness of death, the emptiness of life and death, the emptiness of dukkha. And that brings, at a certain level in the being, it brings a whole other level of freedom. And not without ethics. Not without ethics. Because it's that middle way. So as I said, I threw it out a couple of times. I don't think it's actually obvious that our suffering is funny. I don't think it's obvious that our suffering is actually tied to our perceiving of inherent existence. I think it takes quite a while to see that. This is from Nagarjuna's uh, 60 Stanzas of Reasoning. Those who assert that dependent phenomena, contingent phenomena, uh, dependently arisen phenomena, are like reflections of moons in water, not real and not unreal. That's the key point, not real and not unreal. Those who assert that dependent phenomena are not real and not unreal, are not captivated by views. This, as Tsongkhapa said, this middle way is so hard to to uh, find, to see, to to rest in. So it's a profound, profound thing to uh, to really uh, journey into the depth of what this means. It's about practice. I keep saying over and over, all this is about practice. It's not about abstract philosophy. I've been a bit more abstract philosophical tonight than I have in other talks. But it's not really about that. It's about practice. All this for me is about practice. The more we see in practice, through practice, the emptiness of things, the more and more deeply we see that, the more it brings, un unquestionably, the more it brings freedom, the more it opens up this capacity to give in life, to opens up the capacity of the heart, extraordinarily so, and it doesn't uh, lead to not paying one's bills, to not taking care of one's personal hygiene to uh, walking around, bumping into things, to not caring, etc. If, if that is the case, that with, there's a respect for conventional reality, an increase in freedom and love and the rest of it, you know you're on the right track. You know you're on the right track. And in terms of practice, that I know. That I know. The more, the more deeply we see into emptiness, the more, the more those effects. Without... Uh, contradicting ethics or anything, actually with more care, more uh, 
reverence and honoring and wanting to serve life despite its emptiness and the planet and all the rest of it. It comes organically out of the seeing of the emptiness. And that, that I know. And just to finish with a quote of, of Nagarjuna. Relying on actions and effects, or relying on cause and effect, relying on karma, whatever, however you like, relying on actions and effects within knowing this emptiness, within really knowing this emptiness of phenomena, is even more amazing than the amazing, mm. and even more marvelous than the marvelous. Could you repeat that? That's repeat it. Mm. Relying on actions and effects within really knowing this emptiness of phenomena is even more amazing than the amazing and even more marvelous than the marvelous. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.